Okay, well, I'm going to declare that we have a quorum present, and we're going to dive in. Folks, uh, folks can catch up. Um, my name is Ken Pretty, and uh, I serve as director of the Go Center, which is short for the Go and Make Disciples Center. So everything that we do is Great Commission centric. Uh, and today will be no exception. I've discovered that the, there is no expiration date on the Great Commission. And despite things that come and go and trends that happen here and there, it's always time to go and make disciples. So we're going to do that. Um, let me pray for us and we'll just dive in. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for your love for us. I thank you for these folks that are here uh, today, their commitment to you, and I just pray for your blessing on our time together, that it would be glorifying to you, honoring to the name of Christ, and strengthening for us in our various ministries. We give you this time in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I've been involved in a lot of ministry for a lot of years. Uh, just very quickly, I, uh, my introduction was through church planting. And over the years, that sort of gravitated to kind of an unexpected place, which was the opposite end of the life cycle in revitalization. Um, in that pursuit, which is now 22 years full time, um, I get the opportunity to go into lots and lots and lots of churches all over the country, mostly EPC, uh, some outside of the EPC, as well as out of the country into other cultures and whatnot. And I'm finding that, uh, you know, human beings being human beings, that there are these things that tend to happen over time that lead to plateau and decline for most churches, unless there's been some kind of very strategic intervention along the way to keep things sharp and, and focused. Well, this idea of boom, boomers out on mission, is something that is a fairly recent vintage, uh, despite that as a boomer, I am not of recent vintage, okay? Okay, next month marks my 72nd birthday. So uh, I'm back to, um, you know, born in 1950. So... Uh, I, was, uh, I was raised in an inner city neighborhood called Oregon Hill in Richmond, Virginia. Later moved a little bit away from the center city to uh, a neighborhood called Highland Park, and, uh, which put me in a different school district. So I began to attend Chandler Junior High School in the eighth grade, and I met this girl named Sharon. Nine years I married this girl later and last month we had our 50th anniversary so uh, it was credit to her okay um, the reason I tell you that is because it's going to lead into the story of, of someone that I want to share with you to kind of set the stage uh, now when it comes to this idea of boomer mobilization which is the category that I'm focusing on today um, you know, what I'm realizing is that there are certain things going on in the lives of people in my demographic that, say, weren't going on 
10 years ago, 20 years ago. Life is going by, uh, and there are certain common denominators, certain things that are popping up that have become increasingly relevant in that generation. Now, when we look at the church of today, uh, the story of the American evangelical church at this point is that many, many churches, perhaps most churches, are in plateau or decline. Those same churches tend to have a rather high percentage of baby boomers among the current congregation. So in other words, uh, as we're getting smaller as churches, we're getting older as congregations. Okay, and that, that combination, uh, if it goes un uh, unaddressed, is problematic for the church. Now, I want to, uh, with that in mind, I want to share the story of a, a man named Bill Via. Now, Bill Via is my wife's cousin. That's why I told you that little story. Three years ahead of us, so when we moved into freshman year of high school, he was a senior. So I knew of this person back in 1964, I guess it was, 65, something like that. You know how it is. Freshmen know seniors. Seniors don't know freshmen. <laughs> you, you, know, you know how that works. And he was a kind of guy that was uh, a person that sort of made himself known, okay? Well, it didn't mean much to me at the time, but then later, of course, when I married my wife, I married into that family. And so this man, Bill, was more or less threaded through my life over decades of time. And uh, Bill never had any interest in things of faith. Uh, we had various conversations here and there, and he seemed to appreciate what I do for a living. You know, I would always get called upon to pray, you know, like at Thanksgiving dinners. I'm the professional Christian, right? Let that guy pray. Okay. Well, uh, we sort of had this mutual respect for each other, but no commonality in terms of our, our faith. But three summers ago, Bill was diagnosed with a malignant heart tumor. Malignant heart tumor. Extremely unusual. So much so that, uh, you know, the MD Anderson people from Houston medical folks got involved for research and whatnot. Well, he got in touch with me, wanted to talk. I go over his house. He says, Ken, I got two things I want to talk to you about. First of all, would you be willing to officiate at my funeral? First time the party of the deceased invited me to do his funeral. <laughs> Okay. Second question is where, what springboards into what we're talking about today. He says to me, I've, I've kind of not paid attention to, to religion. You know, I respect you and Sharon and the way you've raised your family. And I, I get that. It's been great for you guys, not for me. But now with this diagnosis, I'm feeling... Maybe I need to, quote, take spiritual inventory. 
can you help me with that? So we began to meet weekly and I'm kind of walking him through all the things that you would walk through with someone, you know, Jesus 101, Faith 101, Bible 101, you know, all the, all the basics, kind of the repent and believe context. And he's catching on. He's getting it. He's, he's really tracking. Obviously, he's motivated, but it wasn't insincere. It was truly like, help me understand what's real, you know. Um, it's one of those things. I knew this day would come, but not yet. Well, yet all of a sudden was upon him. Okay. Well, after a number of months of this, we reached a point where my sense was that that he was ready. He was there. He seemed to, to have a grasp of the fundamental basics of the faith, you know, the simple gospel. So one afternoon, I, I walked him through a series of short questions, yes or no. And he was affirming all the right things, having asked great questions along the way. I said, well, Bill, I feel like you're there. You know, in my heart, I feel like you're there. So how about right now? Let's pray. And you can ask Jesus to step into your life as your Savior. And he says, well, I can't do it. Well, he's ruining my afternoon now. I'm thinking, I'm thinking I've got this great testimony thing going on here. You know. So what do you mean you can't do it? I mean, you're, you're there. It's just sitting there. And he says, well, it's just not fair. Not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? He says, well, Ken, look, I've ignored God my entire life. Now, right here at the end, I get this terminal diagnosis. I get serious for a couple months, read some stuff, kind of get it. And so now I just say a prayer and bingo, it's okay. So, well, in theological terms, we call that grace. You know, he said, yeah, 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 I know. We've talked about that grace thing before, but it just, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. Now, this is a guy that was very sort of self-reliant his whole life, and he kind of felt like, I kind of need to do something. Well, I didn't know what to do with that. Uh, I hadn't heard this, uh, you know, not fair thing in that context before. So... As I'm continuing the discussion, not knowing what I'm saying at all, in the back of my mind, I'm going, no, help, <laughs> give, give, give me something to do. Where do I go with this? Well, Matthew 20 pops into my head. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. Okay, so I turned to Matthew 20. I said, Bill, I want to read you something. So, you know, I open up and I start reading, you know, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master. Okay. And you know how the, you know how the story goes. He goes out early in the morning, hires some workers, third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour. And then again at the 11th hour, you know, one hour left in the workday. And this master yet again is making that trek uh, down to where day laborers gather. And there are still some there. And so he hires them. Come on. And you know how the story ends, right? At the end, everyone is paid the same. Whether you came in at the crack of dawn or whether you came in at the last second. Of course, what's the picture that's being painted here? What's this about? Well, I mean, we're not talking vineyard and day. 
we're talking salvation. We're talking eternal life. We're talking a, a soul bound for heaven. Well, of course, I was reading this to him, and as I look up, tears come in his face. I said, Bill, you just have to understand, you're one of those 11th hour guys. And I said, so, hey, let's, let's, let's pray you in. Okay, so he receives Christ as the Savior. Some weeks later, I had the opportunity to baptize him. And, uh, you know, we, we had about from the time I baptized him, his baptism to his funeral was roughly ten and a half months. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience uh, for him, for me, for those of us in the family that love the Lord uh, and love him. And uh, but it seems that that particular little one on one thing became like the proverbial rock in the pond and this ripple effect. So I get a text, for example, from his best friend. Ken, I understand you're having some conversations with Bill. I think maybe I need to have those conversations too. Ironically, I ended up meeting with that guy and doing his funeral. I think, yeah, I've got a little cottage industry going here. <laughs> you know, this is working. You know, um, At the funeral, I asked his wife for permission to share that story that I've shared with you in Technicolor. And she agreed. Well, Bill was a high-powered guy that worked all over the world in a various, various contexts. So I started getting emails and texts from all over the world, people that live-streamed his funeral, as well as people that were physically there. And I'm starting to realize, like, duh, I'm on to something here. There's something going on here. And uh, what I came to realize is that there is what I now call a massive 11th hour harvest sitting out there in the harvest fields. And, you know, you'll notice at the very bottom of page one of that handout, you see that little phrase from verse six. It says, about the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing. Another way to look at that is that 11th hour harvest is plentiful. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of people in that 11th hour of their lives whom Jesus Christ is going to impact before they die. And who's, who's, who needs to be there to help make that happen? Well, the church needs to be there. Now, think about Matthew 9 for a moment. Here's the equation. Harvest, plentiful. <coughs> Laborers, few. Now hold that thought for a moment. I want to take you back to verse 6. Verse 6 of Matthew 20 says this, About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. Now what's the picture? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
And when Jesus delivers that pronouncement in Matthew 9, harvest plentiful, laborers few, he makes a prayer request. What's the prayer request attached to that set of verses? What does he say? Pray what? Lord of the harvest would do what? Send out out laborers. See, he doesn't say pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll impact the harvest. Because we've got a harvest problem. Those people just aren't listening. The problem is not the harvest. The harvest is exactly what God intended it to be. It's plentiful. It's sitting there. The problem is the labor shortage. Not because there's too few Christians, but because there are too few Christians laboring in the harvest. So where things need to beef up is not on the harvest side. It's on the labor side. Now, what I've done is I've taken that context and into the, the, the lane of a particular demographic, which is the baby boomer. Okay, so that's kind of the beginning of the story. Well, that, that time with Bill and helping him, quote, take spiritual inventory led me to create um, a tool that I call SPIN. Let me turn my little deal on here through the miracle of digital electronics. Uh, SPIN, Spiritual Inventory for Boomers. And the thrust uh, goes like this. What do you believe? And secondly, why do you believe it? And so I created this document. The idea would be when folks like Bill come along, these potential 11th hour harvest possibilities, wouldn't it be nice to have a tool to help guide them through this process? Okay, so originally I created this tool just to use uh, in my own experience, Uh, but, you know, things have expanded from there. So the tool is now being modified to be uh, more appropriately used in general. But the idea is helping people confront, sort of, like, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Now, what I'm finding is that uh, folks that are outside of the faith, uh, when I have these conversations with them about what they believe, it's very nebulous often. It's not clear. It's confusing. The, The what part is confusing. But when you get to the why, it's it's all over the place. Well, you know, you believe such and such. Why do you believe that? It's logical. I read it in a book. You know, social media talked about it. You know, there, there's no faithful uh, place to stand. So what I'm realizing is that people in my age group have reached that point where they're, let's just say, more curious about matters of the soul, matters of faith, than they've ever been before. Why? Mortality has struck a fearful blow. And I'll say really wonderful things like, well, you realize that more of your life is behind you than ahead of you, right? And, you know, well, I'm only 73. You know, I could live another 10 or 20 years, and I'll say... 
So how fast would you say the last 10 or 20 years went by? <laughs> wow. I mean, you, you, feel the, you feel the force of that? I mean, these, these are folks. I mean, number one, we're reformed, right? I mean, we understand that God is sovereign and that he elects, he chooses his family. But what I believe to be uh, the truth is that much of his family that he has chosen yet remains estranged from the family. They're prodigal. Now, I'm not concerned that they're going to fall through the cracks, but I don't want to rely on that. I don't want to say to God when he says to me, why didn't you go into the harvest? I didn't want to say, well, theologically, I knew no one would fall through the cracks. That's not the response I want to get. You know, I want to die in the harvest. That's, where, that's my vision. I want to die in the harvest with the gospel on my lips. Okay? I'm being hyperbolic, of course. Okay? But anyway, you get the idea, right? Okay. Now, so what are these objectives of this idea of boomer mobilization? Well, here's the deal. We've got all these baby boomers in the church. We've got all these lost baby boomers out in the harvest. And we got to connect these two. Uh, you know, we don't have time to get into all of the nuances of, of older congregations and what their perspectives are and when the transition of leadership moves from boomer to Gen X or millennial. You know, these things are very complex and whatnot. I'm just saying that, you know, in the world of church and in the world of community, there is a very robust demographic called baby boomers that are ripe for the gathering. So let's get out there. And lots of boomers in the church need, the, need that purpose and meaning and action in their lives uh, for their own benefit. So what we've done is we put together an approach to develop boomers in the church through training and through providing tools and whatnot to mobilize them for reaching boomers in the community. Now, I want to share something with you in regard to this idea. Uh, I refer to this as the innovation triangle. Uh, and here's how it works. Um, at the top, we have the contents of ministry. Uh, I realize this is small, maybe hard to see. Contents of ministry. Now, the contents of ministry are the non-negotiables. These are the things that we are going to hold to no matter what. You know, uh, our theology, divinity of Christ, authority of Scripture, Trinity. These are not things that, that we can compromise on. We can't give them away. In the EPC, we might include things like the EPC essentials. Okay? One thing I love about the EPC is that when I know uh, a man or a woman is, is licensed and credentialed and ordained in the EPC, I know we're on the same team because I know they would not be there if they did not share these contents with me. Okay? All right. So, contents are fixed, non-negotiable. Down in the lower left there, we have the context of ministry. Now, this word is uh, I'm using to refer to the folks that live out in the communities around our churches, those who populate 
the domestic mission fields around our churches. Now, the context I'm going to describe as semi-negotiable. Now, they're not negotiable in the sense that we can displace these people and replace them with a preferred demographic. Okay, who lives there is who lives there. In that sense, it's a given. However, no one church is going to be able to reach everyone. Okay, we can't reach everyone. And so we're going to take that, that giant uh, diverse group that's out there and narrow that down to one or two or three slices of the community that we can really connect with that we have the best opportunity to reach. Now, I will say this. Uh, sometimes as I share this concept, I get criticized, as hard as that might be for you to believe, okay? And folks will say things like, well, wait a minute, Ken. Sounds like you're being exclusive. You know, aren't, aren't we supposed to reach everybody? And I'll say... Hey, if your church is reaching everybody, please close your training manual and send me away because I'm about to ruin that for you. But I haven't met that church yet. Okay? Let me tell you what's closer to the truth. Most churches are closer to reaching nobody. So what I'm saying is let's at least reach somebody so far from being exclusive i think i'm widening the terrain because this is the starting place for a lot of churches do you, you see that you, you okay so you know the idea hey let's figure out who are the somebodies that we're particularly called to address how do we connect with them? And let's, let's start to build uh, you know, a godly track record of impacting people with the gospel. And if we get really, really effective at reaching a group or two, we can expand that, expand that, expand that. But we're not called to reach everybody. God actually has other churches, believe it or not, that are going to do their part. We do our part, they do our part, and the collective landscape comes closer to reaching everybody God intends to reach. You with me so far? Yeah. Okay. All right. Good deal. Um, so what we want to do is we want to help, you know, define who is our context. Now, having done so, we then move to the other corner of the triangle, the containers. Now, this is, the, well, I went to seminary, so I learned how to do alliteration. That's a, that's a three-point sermon right there. For, for those of you who are ill-prepared for returning to the pulpit Sunday, ta-da, this is you, okay? Um, the containers is a word that I use for our, our methods of ministry, our approaches, you know, the styles that we use, the preferences that we adopt. Um, it, you know, whether we use... Uh, this kind of music or that kind of music. That's a container issue. Uh, whether we have VBS or don't have VBS, that's a container issue. Okay? Now, the containers are completely negotiable. They have no theological weight whatsoever. They're just tools. 
Okay? What we're trying to do from the standpoint of innovation is this is where innovation is applied. We're not going to innovate our theology. We're not going to innovate who lives in our community. We're going to innovate the how. How are we going to reach these folks? So we craft the kinds of containers that are going to be the most effective at giving us the opportunity to deliver the contents to the context. You follow how that works? So we're working our way around the triangle. You know, non-negotiable, semi-negotiable, completely negotiable. Now, where a lot of churches run into conflict is church folk have a tendency to want to give their favorite containers the status of contents, thereby making them non-negotiable, and the idea of innovation is completely squashed. Okay. All right. So, innovation triangle. I think this is an important concept that I'd like for you to consider. Uh, so when we come to the outcomes, what is it that we're trying to achieve? Well, in terms of boomers inside the church, uh, the idea is to train, equip, encourage, inspire, <coughs> you know, get them on mission. We're not talking about, you know, quote, placating the old timers in our church, okay? We're talking about uh, mobilizing those of us who are of uh, older stock, let's say, and still be involved in ministry because we've got decades of life experience. Many of us have known the Lord for years and years and years and years. And I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to hang it up. You know, I want to keep banging away, banging away to the best of my ability until Jesus either calls me home or shows up. Okay, I think they call it the second coming. I like to refer to it as the second sending. Because Jesus was originally sent to what? Seek and save the lost. And he's going to be sent again to gather the family. Okay? Uh, so boomers inside the church are training essentially to be missionaries in their own neighborhoods in their own businesses, in their own families. You know, gone are the days when we can sort of sit back in the easy chair and, and think somehow we live in the middle of a Christian nation. You know, we, it's like we need to be foreign missions, missionaries in our own neighborhoods now. Domestic mission field is the phrase I use all the time now. Okay, so here's what I've discovered. Now that we've started providing training like this to some churches, I've discovered some things that I kind of didn't anticipate, but they're really not surprising. I'm finding that lots of the baby boomers in the church are not razor sharp in their theological clarity. They're not razor sharp in their gospel clarity. And their ability to articulate the gospel to someone else is little shaky. So my original plan was that this would simply just be equipping folks for ministry outside, but it has in fact proved to be discipleship. You know, helping boomers refine 
their theological understanding, gospel understanding, gospel articulation. Okay? So that's happening inside. Now, boomers on the outside, who are the, uh, you know, the ultimate motivation here, uh, now the opportunity is for them to be reached. You know, this idea of, you know, why are you still here? Why are you just standing here? And the answer is, well, no one has come. Well, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to fill in that blank. We've got, to, we've got to be sending our baby boomers out from the church as missionaries to their own peer group. And that peer group is ready for the gospel. Okay? As Jesus says, the fields are ripe for harvest. Well, this is one application of that. Now, yeah, there was that question? Okay. Now, when you, when you think about this, when you think about what would happen if the boomers of your congregation uh, were, uh, were sort of energized, inspired, trained, mobilized, called, and sent, and they started to have an impact in the community such that uh, some of the folks that they're engaging with start to come into your church, what would that do for your church? Now, what I hear all the time from pastors and leaders is we've got to figure out how to reach Gen X. We've got to figure out how to reach millennials and whatever comes next. Okay? We're going to run out of alphabet before long. Okay? <laughs> Gen Z, Gen Z, Gen A, Z, Z A, Z prime. I don't know. I don't know. We're gonna. We're, somebody else will figure it out. I'll be gone by then. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Yes, it's true. It's absolutely true that the future of the American Evangelical Church is in some ways dependent upon our ability to become more effective at reaching young people. But in order to become effective at reaching young people, we have to still be here. Our churches have to still be alive and not just alive. They have to be vibrant. They have to be outward facing. So why don't, why don't we take who we now have, largely the boomer generation, and the strength that could be brought to the existing uh, congregation added the strength of those being brought in through outreach and evangelism. Now the church becomes more robust, more energized, better resourced, and it gives the opportunity for that church to have longevity, not just in terms of its existence, but it's in terms of its effectiveness. Yes. So um, going back to the Bill, Bill Via story. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about what kind of impact that had on his children? Well, he his does. Children and grandchildren. Bill does not have children, okay. grandchildren. Um, yeah, which is partly why they kind of, he and his wife kind of hang out with us. Uh-huh. You know, we were we were like their I don't know, their play family or something. I don't. Know. The, the other individual you talked about. Um, what I'm getting at is if we can reach the parent, maybe a profound impact on the parent will have an effect well, on the, let me, uh, yeah. the millennials. Well, following that, that line, um, I think I mentioned that 
You know, I got this text from Bill's best friend. Right. Okay. A guy named Jerry. Also a guy who was like a senior when we were freshmen in high school. Okay. Well, Jerry sent me that text. So I got back in touch with him. And, uh, you know, he asked to meet me. So I went over his house. And I was kind of thinking it was going to be like, you know, Bill via 2, you know, the sequel. But it turns out that Jerry actually was theologically pretty savvy. In fact, he'd actually been on a, a church staff years ago, an evangelical church. Uh, and he had a basic solid belief, but he had had a really nasty experience with that church and had kind of walked away from, you know, organized religion, whatever that means. Uh, but so the, the, the nature of that conversation was quite different. But what I always try to do with folks is get them, get them to the Bible, get them to Jesus. You know, I don't care what the question is. To me, the answer is get in the Bible, get with Jesus. Okay. And so, I mean, Jerry had all of this philosophical mumbo jumbo that we talked through. And I kept saying, Jerry, listen, listen, listen. There's one source of truth. And it's scripture. So forget all of this extraneous stuff. Start to read to, to read the Bible again. That's where the action is. And uh, you know, figure out who Jesus is, who you are in relation to Jesus. Once you get that part figured out, all these other things will kind of fall in place. And he did that. He started reading, and you know, we had a couple of conversations, and he was very. Uh, I could see he was kind of dialing back into the real thing. All right. Jerry was a guy with really poor health. So about, let's see, less than a year. Yeah, like six months after Bill Via died, Jerry was driving down the road one day and uh, had a heart attack and coasted to the side of the road up against a telephone pole died on the spot family jerry had kids so i heard through the grapevine that this had happened but you know it's not like i was pastor of his church or anything like that i, I didn't know that i would have a role well a couple of days after his younger brother calls me and he says we were going through a drawer in Jerry's desk and we came across this folder of things he had collected over the years that he wanted done at his funeral. And he said, in the margin of one of the pieces of paper, it says, I want Ken Pretty to officiate at my funeral. Okay. Well, that gave me an opportunity then to sit down with his wife, his children, his brothers, his brother and, and wife and their children. And they were at varying degrees of, uh, you know, faith commitment, great conversations, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned this yet or not, because I talk about this all the time. I might have told you already. But after Bill's wet funeral, 
his wife sent me a card. Dear Ken, thanks for all you did for, for Bill, blah, blah, blah. Then she says, you do realize there are lots of these 11th hour people out here, right? I had business associates that got in touch with me that said, Ken, I love what you did at the funeral. I want you to know I had been praying for Bill to come to Christ for 15 years. You know, I mean, it's hard to measure these things, but you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's, it can be a multi-generational thing. And, you know, you know when, the, when Jerry's nephew comes up to me, he said, I really appreciate the fact that you made uh, uh, you know, my, my uncle's funeral about Jesus. You know, I mean, this stuff is priceless. This is, this is really, really where the action is. All right. Now, the idea, uh, ultimately, you know, we had the beginning. You know, I'm playing with this boom thing, right? You got that? The beginning, the objectives, the outcomes. All right. And then the M, multiplication. So think about this. The way God works, of course, we have this record that we know is the Bible, how does the Bible start? Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have the first hint of the covenant. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, 66 books later, Revelation. What do we have? Behold, a new heaven, a new earth, and a multitude too numerous to count. Praising God. So, God is moving us from Genesis to Revelation. From original heaven and earth to new heaven and earth. From multiply to multitude. And how is he doing that? Well, man, woman, child gathered in from the harvest. The history of redemption is playing out as we speak, probably all over the world. In, the, in the, the, the time we've been in this room, all across this planet, men, women, children have come into the family of God. It's unrelenting. Why? Because Jesus is building his church. So, you know, one of the questions we have to ask is what role is my church playing in the unfolding history of redemption? And narrowing that a little further is, what about this boomer generation? I'm always asking pastors and, and leaders these days, what percentage of your active congregation falls in that baby boomer demographic? And the answers, the lowest I've ever heard so far is something like 40%. You know, some as high as like 70, 75%. Pastor yesterday told me, he said, well, about 50% of, of our active people are boomers, but 100% of, of our leadership are boomers. Well, this is a resource that could be harnessed for the spreading of the gospel, for the gathering of the saints, for the strengthening of the church. Let's do this. That's the way I see it. So flip over on the back. I've kind of laid out all of this uh, 
kind of philosophical, theological, biblical thing. Uh, what I want to do now is walk you through a little bit of nuts and bolts. Um, how do you do this? How do you, how do you put a ministry together that's going to mobilize, in this case, baby boomers? But I, I want to say right up front that this, this model that I'm going to unpack real quickly here could be applied in any ministry area. It could be youth, it could be children, it could be men's and women's, it could be arts, it could be small groups. You know, the same model could apply. But the context we're talking about today is boomers. So uh, in terms of teams, who do we want to mobilize and what are they going to do? Well, we need a boomer leadership team. We need a handful of people that are going to be at the wheel of this thing and pushing it forward. Uh, ministry does not happen by accident. You have to make it happen. So these are the folks that would be the organizers, the drivers, the ones that would see that the action steps are followed through. Secondly, the prayer teams. Um, I can't overemphasize this. I mean, we all know the importance of prayer, right? But the fact that we know it doesn't necessarily mean that we execute. The battle is not against what? Flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. It's a spiritual battle. So we got to use spiritual weapons. Now, here's the deal. Um, when we uh, address the spiritual, both positives and negatives, like positive, like spiritual impact in people's lives, negatives like spiritual resistance that we're going to face. Here's the deal. Whenever a church steps up its efforts to impact the lost community, our enemy takes notice. And we don't have to be fearful of that because, I mean, we're on the winning team. We don't have to be afraid, but we can't be naive and act like it's not there. It's there. So we pray, we pray, we pray. And we don't pray by happenstance. We pray strategically. So we put together teams. All right. Second, what I'm calling the boomer missionary team. This would be that cadre of people that really take this seriously, really uh, dive into the training, get fully equipped and really start practicing this. Uh, maybe even getting together periodically to compare notes, that kind of thing. I mean, ideally, Everybody would be on this team, but in reality, not everyone is going to be fully committed. So let's find those who are and let's build a cohesive strategic team. Uh, and then there is the Boomer Welcome Team. Now, this might be a surprising entry, but here's the deal. If you're going to become more effective at impacting boomers in the community, some of them are going to make their way to your church. And how you receive them the first time they come is of huge significance. So you don't wait till they start showing up and then go, oh my goodness, now what do we do? You figure that out before they ever get there. Okay, you have a welcome and assimilation plan in place, trusting that your efforts are going to be effective and one of the outcomes will be new folks coming into the church. So you build that team. You build the capacity to receive newcomers well before the newcomers ever get there. 
Okay. Um, now, one thing that pops up often as I'm having this discussion with folks is they kind of look at their boomer population and they're going, man, I'm not sure our people are going to respond well to this kind of call. Uh, you know, you start hearing things, well, you know, I've been serving for 50 years and it's time for me to take a break or, you know, there's burnout, there's yada, yada, yada. Okay, I get that. But here's the thing. Part of, the, part of the reason folks burn out is because what they're doing isn't really meaningful. You know, they're filling a slot in, in some 20th century program that has no bearing on what's going on now. Well, of course people burn out with something like this. So I want to show you something um, uh, to sort of put, put this in perspective. Now, this, uh, this diagram here is referred to by its creators as the support challenge matrix. The source for this is an outfit called ProSci, P-R-O-S-C-I. Uh, I went through a certification program with these folks in change management. This is one of the reasons that I went through that. I, I was exposed to this particular diagram and I thought, oh my goodness, what else do they have? So uh, I studied with them for a year so I could get access to things like this. All right, here's how this works. Uh, they talk about four types of leadership style in a given organization, in our case, the church. Well, starting over here, uh, the protector. Well, the protector is a type of leader that offers very high support, but issues very low challenge. So what kind, of, what kind of culture do you get? Well, you get an entitlement culture. People are feeling like, wow, I receive all this and I'm not being asked to do much. And ultimately, that leads to this sense of entitlement. One of the challenges to this style of leadership is it's, it's not sustainable. You see, it might work on the front end. Let's take churches, for example. I know of several millennial-targeted churches that function like this. They're trying to give people everything. We're here for you. It's easy. We'll take care of you, yada, yada, yada. And we're not going to ask you to do anything. Entitlement. The problem is that it works, sort of. And this particular churches that I have in mind, they get larger and larger and larger and larger. But the workforce doesn't get larger. So the handful of people that are carrying the load can't carry it anymore. It's too big. So either they start cutting back on what they're offering or they turn a corner and say, you know what? This uh, low challenge thing can't work anymore. We got to start recruiting people, getting them involved, giving them assignments, yada, yada, yada. Well, that starts to feel like a bait and switch. Mistrust. And I do run into this kind of church. And this kind, and number three, the leadership style is the abdicator. Low challenge, low support. This church might as well not even be there. It's invisible. This is the kind of church when I ask the question, you know, if your church was to close tomorrow, would your community miss it? The answer would be, nah, they don't even know we're here. I don't see a lot of those, thank the Lord, at least on the evangelical side of things. Over here, we have the dominator. High challenge, 
low support. It's kind of a coercive environment. I've met a number of churches along this line. I actually worked for a dominator for five years in one of my church plant ministries. About kill me. Demand, 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 but cut your legs out at the drop of a hat. Okay? That usually is a product of a very, very strong-willed senior pastor who rules with an iron fist. And everybody else cowers in fear of doing something wrong. Okay? I do run into that. I'm not going to say regularly, but it's, it's much more than, than this. Now, of course, this is where the action is, the liberator. High support, high challenge. Okay, what kind of culture do you create? Well, you create a culture of empowerment because you're challenging people to step up to higher levels of, of, of participation, of responsibility, um, but you're also providing them the means for moving up. Okay, you're not just allowing status quo to prevail. You're always looking for, you know, what is God, how has God wired this person? What kind of giftedness do they have? Uh, how do we get them engaged in more meaningful ministry? What do they need from us to make this happen? Okay, and so we create this this empowerment. Now, the reason I bring this up at this point is if you are going to mobilize uh, a ministry, in this case for baby boomers, and you're going to be developing a leadership team, a prayer team, a welcome team, a missionary team, you can't do that without stepping into people's lives and challenging them to engage, to be involved, to get, to get where the action is, to take on a responsibility, to move from followership to leadership, to move from leadership to higher leadership, okay? But when you combine challenge with support, even though that person might find themselves exhausted every once in a while, it's a good exhaustion because you're doing something meaningful for the right reasons to the glory of God. And you're seeing the outcome in people's lives. So, you know, we don't want to offer high support and not challenge. We don't want to challenge without support. What we want to do is create a culture in our churches where the, the modus operandi is we offer high support with high challenge. So that's where this fits in. Any questions about that? That makes sense to you? Yeah. Again, I hate to dominate, but um, one thing that when we think about, um, when you ask the question, how many folks are in your church are, are boomer age? Yeah. Um, that's really a very, very important aspect. Sure. That's when other boomers show up, they're going to see themselves. Yeah. And so one thing that the welcome team needs to, to infuse into the entire congregation is you got all week to see each other. You need to spend time with these new folks that are coming in that look like you. You may possibly know, but you need to get to know them because they're way out of their comfort zone. You're right. In the midst of your, right. Exactly. You know, breaking up those um, yeah. conversations. Yeah. You know, even, even when you adopt this sort of outward facing church, yeah. um, 
the the sort of the 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 bridge is when that outward facing enterprise starts to produce people that are coming in but like you say you, they they need to feel at home right and you know I, something that comes to mind my last pastorate um we had a practice of interviewing all of our members yearly to just take stock of who was where and this sort of thing. And we would always ask, uh, you know, how things are going for them and if there were any issues or problems they might be having that we could address. So uh, my, one of my elder, elders contacted me one time and he said, hey, Ken, I just had I had an annual conversation with so-and-so and uh, there was something that came up that I felt like I needed to uh, alert you about. I said, okay, what? He says, well, he, he thinks you don't like him. Imagine, koala bear me, you know, not liking somebody. Okay, so um, I thought, well, okay. Uh, I got in touch with this gentleman, and I said, hey, could we, could we get together? Uh, I'd like to talk with you. So we had this meeting, and I, I said, you know, so-and-so told me that you, your perspective is that I don't like you, um, if I've offended you in some way, you know, I apologize, da, 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 but help me understand where's this coming from? What's, what's going on? What did I do now? You know, he said, well, Ken, after the service on Sundays, he said, I always come up to speak to you, but you're always busy talking to somebody else. And you just look right past me like I don't exist. And he says, so, you know, I just gave him, well, Ken must not like me. So, okay, okay, let me explain something to you. I said, we have a a welcome process for Sunday mornings. And the last step in the welcome process is for the people that we call our host to introduce newcomers to whoever was speaking. And normally that was me. So my deal was, you know, God bless you and keep you, da-da-da, amen. And I step off the front of the platform and I stand there and our host throughout the room are bringing the newcomers, introducing them to me. And, you know, you're, you're meeting people that are saying, you know, the last church I went to, I was there a year and a half before I met the pastor. Well, we don't want them to meet the pastor day one as an honoring thing for them. I said, so that's the deal. I said, the 15 or 20 minutes after the service, my focus is on meeting newcomers. I said, now you and I can meet anytime. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, I'll come to your office, I'll come to your house. Any time of the week except for the 15 minutes after the service. I said, does that make sense to you? He said, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, okay. I said, okay, now, now that you understand that, would you be willing to commit your first 15 minutes after the service connecting with newcomers? He's like, yeah, I could do that. Bingo, problem solved, philosophy intact, vision held to, you know. But that's the way it works. You know, all the oars in the water pulling in the same direction at the same time. All right, but this is an important dynamic, I think, to strive to be a church that leads like liberators. We offer plenty of support for people we are caretakers and shepherds and whatnot, after all. But we don't let them just sit. 
we mobilize, we get them involved in real ministry with real consequences, and that empowers them as well as the ministries that they provide. So, good stuff all around. All right, let's move on. Um, we're getting close to the end here, so need to move on. Uh, not quite ready for that yet. Hold on. Um, now, uh, in terms of number two there on page two, priorities and systems. Uh, what are the operational first considerations? Well, you see them there. There needs to be uh, folks that are, are working on communications. Uh, we want very high visibility to this boomer initiative. We want the boomers of the church, at least, to be fully informed about what's going on all the time. We want things to be crystal clear. We don't want people to have to guess what's going on. Secondly, accountability. Uh, accountability is sorely lacking in, in the ministries of the church. We're dealing with pretty much an all-volunteer army. We don't want to push people, so we kind of let people kind of get around to it whenever they can. Well, often they don't get around to it, or they get around to it halfway. So I'm a firm believer in providing a little bit of what I'm going to call soft accountability. When you set deadlines, you meet deadlines. If you don't meet de deadlines, you hear about it. And you gradually convert the culture into a culture that actually gets things done. Okay? Uh, one book that I really like, I didn't want to haul the whole book, so I just copied the cover. Okay? <laughs> Uh, it's a great little book. It's a marketplace book. It's called The Four Disciplines of Execution, shorthand, the 4DX model. Uh, you see the name here, Sean Covey, mm -hmm. son of Stephen Covey. Okay, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Covey, that guy. All right. The basic premise of this book is that Failure in a given enterprise is usually not from lack of planning, it's from lack of execution. Okay? And so this is a really, really good book to help with implementation, how to execute. I recommend it all the time. Uh, the 40X model, uh, you know, we don't have time to unpack that, but I like it. Uh, when it comes to alignment, uh, sometimes I feel like the ministries of our church are, are kind of this smorgasbord free-for-all. Uh, each ministry area is like its own universe doing its own thing. And there's, there isn't a cohesive sense of what is it that we as a church are trying to accomplish? How does this ministry contribute to that? How does that ministry contribute to that? So the idea of having ministry aligned in our case we talk about great commission alignment so we would want everything that's happening within the context of boomer ministry to have a touch point to the great commission whether it's the the evangelism piece of going whether it's the discipling piece of making disciples uh teaching obedience the understanding of the the the, the breadth of the trinity you know god the father Gives authority to God the Son. He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. And then at the end he says, and I'm with you to the end of the age. How so? Through the Spirit. So we've got this Trinitarian weaving throughout the Great Commission as we work our way from evangelism 
to discipleship. Now, sometimes the Great Commission gets short-souled in the sense that people think of it as an evangelism-only command, but it's not. You know, coming to salvation is not crossing the finish line. It's crossing the starting line. Growing in obedience to the commands of Christ is the discipling line that ultimately leads to sanctification, glorification, all that ordo salutis stuff that we talk about. Okay. Uh, Simple Church is a really good book to help with alignment. One of the things that Tom Rayner talks about in the way of alignment is focus. And he says, focus means that you're saying no to almost everything. Our tendency in ministry is to try to say yes to everything that comes along. And so we get spread too thin and we do a hundred different things in a mediocre way. Ideas, let's zero in on the main things and keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, and then there's the idea of testimonies. Um, people that, you know, there's always a certain amount of early adopters that when a new idea comes along, they jump on board. They don't need a whole lot of prep. But most people are not wired that way. Most people need to see something more substantive. And there's nothing better than solid testimonies that, that show the results. That builds your proof of concept. And so, you know, when you get your early adopters going and things are starting to happen, you know, make note of those things and uh, talk about them and spotlight them so that folks can see, ah, I wasn't so sure about this up front, but now I see that it's working. Maybe I should look uh, at getting involved myself. All right, last but not least, let me just alert you to a few tools uh, for evangelism. Uh, one tool that uh, I, I, like myself, um, comes from Psalm 103. You guys are very familiar with this passage. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, I'm a musician. I write songs. I'm always fascinated by the songwriting process. So I'm looking at David, the songwriter, and I'm going, where's this psalm coming from? Why is David talking to himself? Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's like he's looking in the mirror. David, bless the Lord. David, bless the Lord. And, and don't forget his benefits. Why has David got to remind himself not to forget God's benefits? What do you think? He does forget the benefits. You ever forgot what you have in Christ? You ever, ever find yourself halfway through the day going, oh my gosh, I've been living all day on my own. What an idiot. Okay? I forgot. I could have had a V8. Okay? <laughs> All right. All right. So, well, what are the benefits? What are the benefits? We got a little grocery list here. Uh, who forgives all your iniquity. 
heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit. Ever, life ever been in the pit? Okay. Uh, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That is a list of the benefits of being a, a, a child of God. Now, a few years back, it occurred to me that this is the gospel. This is a description of the gospel. Okay? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, what do you get? Forgiveness, healing, redemption, meaning, purpose, love and mercy, satisfaction, renewal. I've realized that this is a shorthand version of the gospel. So if you've, if you've captured this, you know, just memorize these few verses, you've got a little checklist here about how to unpack the gospel. So, you know, I just kind of leave it at that. Use this if you like. Now, we've heard a lot this week, those of us who've been hanging around Bob Stoffer, uh, uh, about the three circles. Uh, this is a very, very uh, simple, straightforward technique for sharing the gospel. It comes from this little book turning uh, everyday conversations into gospel conversations. There's a thousand things online. Just Google uh, the three circles and you'll find it. It's a real handy tool for faith sharing. Uh, who are we going to share our faith with? Well, we're not going to go door to door and, and cold call like I used to do back in the 70s with the evangelism explosion stuff, okay? I think it would be a different kind of explosion today if I were to do that. Uh, but what you can do is um, these idea of circles of contact. You know, just make lists of the different pockets of people that you engage with these days. List those people by name. Give some thought to which of those people seem to be maybe a better prospect than others. Start praying for them by name and looking for opportunities to share. Contact with people in the harvest is the strategic priority. Okay, without contact, gospel does not spread. Okay, and then finally, there is this little tool, spin. Now, what, uh, what I want to share with you in regard to spin and some of these other things is on the back counter there there's a sign up sheet and if you want me to send you some materials that go you know a little broader into these things just give me your name and your email address and i'll i'll get them to you i can send you a copy of spin you can see how it works um uh, let me give you just a little preview, then we'll call it a day. Um, spin is divided into three segments. Segment one, what do you believe? It walks people through a number of yes-no questions. And uh, the idea is, you know, you, it's a, it, I, I refer to it as the lightning round. You know, do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe there's one God or multiple gods? Uh, multiple gods. Well, do you lean more to Hinduism or Buddhism or some other belief system? You know, so the idea is you, you're asking people very quickly, 
Tell me yes or tell me no. Do you believe you have an eternal soul? Do you have a sense of what happens to your soul when you, when you die? How, are you confident that what you believe about the soul is accurate? Okay, yeah, and the force of that. The second segment, why do you believe it? It goes into asking you to explain. Okay, you said that you believe in God. Why do you believe in God? You know, that kind of thing. And this is where things start to break down for people that are outside. They, they're not clear on, well, they might have a belief system, but they're not clear on the, the why. And this starts to open them up. And again, the baby boomer crowd is in the 11th hour. This is more poignant for them, perhaps, than ever. And the third segment gets into more about unpacking the, the Christian faith and that sort of thing. Um, we're kind of out of time here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to go further with this, please get in touch with me. I'd be happy to answer your questions and provide more resources and hopefully uh, maybe bring some of this stuff to a church near you. Okay? All right. God bless you. Take care. Have a great day.